Welcome to this week's Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting System. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, uh, this week we had the opportunity to speak with James Crosby, the CEO of Crosby Foods, uh, formerly known as Crosby Molasses. I think molasses, Crosby Molasses is a well-known product to many people, uh, particularly of a certain generation across Atlantic Canada. And we had an interesting discussion with him about the history of the company going all the way back to 1879, and I guess starting in Yarmouth, all the way through to today and the future opportunities for growth. Well, first of all, I guess all good things start in Nova Scotia. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I grew up with uh, Crosby molasses in our fridge, and my mom, who was a great baker, uh, used molasses a lot in her cooking, and, and she had the best molasses cookies ever. So, you know, it goes back a long time, obviously, this product. The problem with the product line is that it's a mature line. Uh, and it's really, you know, it's, it's generational to some extent. And the challenge for uh, Crosby is to attract the next generation of consumers who don't particularly, you know, they're not as much uh, oriented to baking their own goods as the previous generation was, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So to find other product lines or other lines of work is really uh, the challenge for a company that's been in business for a really long time. The good news is that they have uh, they have some capacity in terms of their manufacturing facilities, which appear to be uh, quite up to date, and uh, and and they have some opportunities to become contract uh, manufacturing packaging uh, for other other companies. They're already doing some of this already, and uh, I think that that's that's where they see their future. That's right, and they have a national footprint. They've got markets in every province, and even some international markets, and. We had a brief discussion about just in general food manufacturing because I, I think that sector has been underappreciated in Canada. And uh, it's it's not as much a national security issue as, say, medical devices or medical supplies. Uh, but we have lost, and we talked to Michael Graydon from the Food, Health, and Consumer Products Association a few weeks ago, and we have lost a lot of manufa- food manufacturing capacity in Canada. And, you know, it could be that one day we lose, you know, the the molasses manufacturing business too. So I I think we have to think about from an economic development perspective, what we want to do with food manufacturing in this country. And I'd like to see a little more focus on that in the years ahead. But I mean, it's an interesting company, 90 staff, as I said, uh, um, uh, footprint across the entire country. But as you pointed out, slow decline every year, 1%, 1 to 2% decline in his core business forcing them to look at, uh, at new opportunities. Yeah. And I, you know, I just want to reinforce your point about the food manufacturers in, in this country is one of the reasons why our food costs are, are high, relatively speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, it's particularly hard in a region, a small region like Atlantic Canada, which doesn't have a big market to serve on its own. In other words, if you're a manufacturer here, you have to sell your products somewhere else to make it work. And, and credit to companies like Crosby, who's been able to um, exist for such a long period of time and in a tough competitive environment, uh, operating on the fringes of the market. It, it's not easy to do, and we've got to give them full credit for, for being able to uh, uh, succeed in that kind of situation. Right, and for investing in that infrastructure to, to import and process uh, into different lines, this this molasses, different kinds of molasses product, right? So that does require significant capital, and that's probably one of the reasons why they haven't had any or, or little competition in Canada for molasses. They've had competition, obviously, from uh, other products that substitute for molasses. But I'll just reiterate what Allison McCain told me one time. He said, you can locate your manufacturing plants near the raw materials, like potatoes, or near your markets, like Toronto. Uh, but if you're neither, you're in trouble. And so right. that's right, because you're, you've got to import your raw materials and then you got to export back out to the end markets. And so that really is where Crosby's is at right now. But they've obviously got some uh, they've <laughs> they've got longevity and, and hopefully uh, they've, they'll be able to reinvent themselves for for a new generation. So without any further ado. Oh, good. Could I just mention one, oh, one, one other thing just before you do, because uh, yep. I think it's important. Just like we. 
talked with Andrew Olin about in, in, in the intergeneration transfer of companies, uh, which in their, in their case, Moosehead is, I think, in their sixth generation. You know, uh, Crosby's are in the same uh, situation. They have successfully, and it's not easy to do, for many generations, transferred the ownership of the company to the next generation. And, you know, the, that doesn't happen uh, accidentally. It has to be planned and, and credit to them to keep the company in, in family hands. Look, Don, rumors are swirling that the Irving Refinery is about to be sold to a multinational right. firm. Um, right. And, right. and one of the main reasons was um, the inability to do a proper succession or, or to find a, a, you know, a next generation that wanted to or could really lead the business. And I don't know the whole, all the details there, but it's a really good point that, that it's not that simple to do the transition. You have to find a willing child or, or children and you have to go through a process and uh, James talks about that here in and I know it's a it's an issue that you've thought about and, and dealt with and um, yeah and I think in the case of Crosby's it's 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 gone quite well yeah exactly okay so without any further ado here's our conversation with James Crosby CEO of Crosby Food. okay welcome to the podcast James well, thanks for having me so Crosby Foods has a long history. I remember putting uh, Crosby's molasses on white bread uh, probably going back 45 years ago. Can you give our listeners a little bit of the history uh, of the company? When was it started? By whom? And, and maybe a couple of big moments over the over the years? Sure. Well, I, I hope it hasn't been 45 years since you used molasses. <laughs> no, I have it in I have it in my pantry right now today. Good. I hope that was just day one of a lifelong uh, love affair. Um, but yeah, no, our, our family has been in this region for a long time. Uh, the first Crosby's actually came uh, to Yarmouth, Nova Scotia from, from Massachusetts way back in 1785. Um, so you fast forward a couple of generations and uh, my great, great, great grandfather, uh, William Crosby, was one of Yarmouth County's uh, best known manufacturers and, and business person. And he had a, a successful shipping trade. Um, so just based on some of the, the, the readings that I've done, and, uh, um, my great, great uncle uh, Victor kept this scrapbook. And uh, so this, and there's articles in the scrapbook that talk about uh, William Crosby being one of the first people in the region to invest in shoemaking equipment. And he and his brother, George, uh, built a cheese manufacturing plant. He had a sawmill and a general store. So it was... William's son, Lorenzo George Crosby, who's um, actually the, the founder of Crosby Molasses, and he worked in his father's general store in Yarmouth. So they had this import-export business where they would ship um, lumber and salt fish to the Caribbean. And you know, rather than sailing uh, the vessels home empty, they would load up the ships with puncheons, uh, which are basically just big barrels of, uh, of molasses. And, and that's really how Crosby Molasses started. Um, they would import these punchins of molasses and uh, distribute them to, to general stores throughout the region. Uh, long history since then, but can you, and we'll be talking about the company as we go here, but can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey? Um, how did you end up as CEO of, uh, of the company? Sure. Well, <clears throat> so maybe I'll just backtrack a little bit. So, um, LG uh, Crosby left Yarmouth um, in 1896 and relocated the business to St. John. So he moved to Germain Street with, uh, with his children. Um, and the facility that we operate out of today uh, on Rossay Avenue in St. John, we've been here since 1911. Um, and essentially the business has, has been passed on from, from father to son or father to sons ever since. So LG passed it to, to his sons, Fred and, and uh, Victor. Uh, Victor didn't have any kids, so it got passed on to my grandfather, uh, James M. Crosby, and his brother, George, then went to my father. And now we're basically in the process of passing the business from my father down to my brother and myself. So, um, so as far as my own journey, I, I, I guess I grew up um, in, in Rossay, um, and in high school, I knew eventually I wanted to be back in this region, but I, I, I wanted to leave the Maritimes to, to go to school. So 
I went to uh, Queen's University and did my business degree there. And then after I graduated, uh, I got a job at Atlantic Sugar in, in Montreal working in their logistics department. And I worked there for about three years and uh, knew I was ready for a change. So I hummed and hawed about, you know, whether to continue to get sort of experience outside of the family business, uh, but ultimately decided to move back to St. John. And, and I've been uh, back since 2006 working in the family business. And um, initially it was in a procurement role and then sort of that expanded into uh, production planning, uh, transportation, warehousing. Uh, more on, I guess, the operation side of the business, and then uh, I became president in 2016. I know that uh, you're a privately held company, James, so you may want to not give us the answers that we need, but can you give us a sense of the size of your organization, maybe by employees or, you know, the number of uh, products that you make and, and distribute uh, give us some idea even if you can give us a revenue number that would be good yeah no we do we we are a, a small family-owned business we we don't disclose revenue um but at the moment we have about uh, 90 people uh, on on the payroll um we have been as high as probably about 120 uh within the last couple of years but um one of our, our, our key customers lost a, a, a major account, uh, one of our contract manufacturing customers. So unfortunately, we've been in a, in a bit of a period of, of retraction um, uh, over the last six months or so. But uh, um, we're sort of regrouping and, and uh, very much focused on, on growth these days. And tell us a little bit about uh, your market reach. Uh, where do you sell your, your products currently? So we, we have a national distribution on our, on our um, grocery formats for, for our molasses products. So we make weekly deliveries um, all the way from, I guess, Newfoundland to, to British Columbia. Uh, we also we have some international customers. Um, we do ship some product to, to Korea. Um, and we do have some presence in, uh, new, in the New England states in the Northeast U.S. Uh, but I would say we're, you know, our, our business is very much uh, Canadian focused at the moment. Um, so, and, and in terms of like our, our, our facility, we have our manufacturing plant here on, on Rossay Avenue, but we also have a, a bulk storage uh, facility right at the, right at the Port of St. John. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about products. Are you more than just molasses? I understand you do contract manufacturing services and there might be, you might do something on an industrial market side for integration into other food products. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about, about your products? Sure, sure. So I'll, maybe I'll start just on the service side. Um, so we do have this liquid bulk terminal um, and we have uh, 50 tanks uh, in total ranging from 25 metric tons of storage all the way up to 10,000 metric tons of storage. Um, so I think we're the, the Port of St. John's longest uh, tenant. Um, so, you know, we always stored our molasses over on the west side. And then um, at some point in the, in the 90s, we took over. There used to be um, a Shell Petroleum handling facility over there. And, and we took that facility over and cleaned it all up and reconditioned all the tanks and made it suitable to handle food grade products. So, so that is sort of, I guess, one unique um, sort of facility that, that, that we operate right at the Port of St. John. And then <clears throat> over at our manufacturing plant on Rossay Avenue, um, that's where we, we package our molasses into smaller consumer sizes and also food service sizes. So we have some molasses customers that take uh, tanker trucks. Like if you're a big industrial bakery or you're a feed mill, you would take, you know, um, tanker truck deliveries of molasses at a time. And we go all the way down to sort of the itty bitty um, sizes. Uh, so we have a bottling line that, that can do bottles that are, you know, less than 300 milliliters. Uh, so we have quite a quite a um, a range of, of of different liquid packaging formats that we offer, 
And then on the dry powder side, there used to be a sugar refinery here in the city. So my grandfather um, and, and his brother, George, got into um, uh, sugar-containing uh, beverage blends probably back in the 60s, uh, 60s and 70s. And, and that's the side of our business where we've had growth uh, recently is on, on that contract manufacturing side. So there's... You know, there's so many, you know, large global food companies out there that, that really view themselves more as marketing companies and, and they really outsource the manufacturing of their products to, to companies like ourselves. Um, so, so we have uh, dry blenders, dry ribbon blenders, where we can mix up uh, beverage and dessert mixes and then we can package those into um, gable top packages, which is like a milk style carton. Um, all the way to pouches of, of, of various sizes. So is that a growing part of your business? Or, so, so there's products on the shelves in, in, super, in supermarkets that uh, you produce for other companies? Correct, yeah. yeah. And that's, that, that's been um, the source of, of, of most of our growth. See, like molasses is, is a pretty stable business, but when you kind of really zoom out, um, it is in long-term structural decline, right? I mean, it is about as traditional and mature a category uh, as you're going to find. Um, so the amount that we sell sort of at the grocery store, you know, year over year is declining by probably about one or 2% on average. Um, and there's been a shift from, from, you know, consumers buying the molasses in the grocery store and doing their own baking in the home to perhaps buying the cookies or buying the, the, the product already made, um, like a molasses cookie or a cake or a bread. They would just buy it rather than, than, than bake from scratch. Um, and then there's also just, uh, there's different store brands available as well. So our, our branded business, um, you know, we, we have to continually invest and market ourselves to try to sort of maintain or, or grow our branded business. But I would say just in general, when it comes to molasses, the size of the pie has been slowly shrinking and, and, and the private label or store brand piece of that pie has been growing a little bit year over year as well. And, and we see that especially um, these days when consumers are really strapped with their, with their budgets, you know, they have to try to stretch their dollars as, as far as they can. So. Those are, I guess, some of the challenges that, that we're up against. So you, you still import your molasses, is that right? Correct, yep. Okay. And, and, and I guess that, those relationships must go back a long time, do they? <laughs> they, they do. Um, so essentially, we import two different grades of molasses. Um, so we have our, our fancy molasses, and, and that is... You know, the, the majority of the molasses that we sell is the fancy grade of molasses. And what fancy molasses is, is, is during um, the, the sugarcane harvest, you basically crush the sugarcane and you're left with the juice. So that juice can, can be heated and inverted into a, a syrup, and that's fancy molasses. It's had no sugars extracted from it whatsoever. That same juice can actually be crystallized into raw sugar as well. So, so the sugar mill that, that where we purchase our, our fancy molasses, they have the ability to, to make fancy molasses and make raw sugar both. Um, so there are literally thousands and thousands of sugar mills around the world, um, uh, but very few of them actually have invested in the, the physical infrastructure, the tanks, the the pans, the, uh, you know, the infrastructure required to make fancy molasses. There's not a lot of them out there. The other grade of molasses that we import is called blackstrap molasses. And blackstrap molasses has a much stronger flavor. It has a lower sugar content. Uh, but blackstrap molasses is a, is a byproduct. Um, so it is a byproduct of, of um, making raw sugar at a sugar mill. It's also a byproduct of sugar refining, which is the process that takes the, you know, the raw sugar crystal and converts it into, you know, the, the, the white table sugar that, that you would buy at the grocery store. 
Now, your company recently rebranded from Crosby Molasses uh, to Crosby Foods. Tell us about the uh, the rationale behind that decision. So it's 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 really um, you know when you have the product name embedded in your company name, we were just finding it to be a bit limiting, right? When we were chatting with a prospective customer or, you know, we had uh, a meeting um, with one of our grocery accounts, we were just always having to explain that we're more than, than, than just molasses. So, so that rebrand was, was really all about um, just speaking more broadly about our capabilities and the value that we can be adding for our customers. That's a big decision because, you know, the, the Crosby Molasses brand has it's been around for a long time. It's very established. It's a, you know, it's a big deal to change your brand. And it's a, it's, there's some risk associated with it, I would think, as well, right? Absolutely. And, and again, we, we view it more as a company name change than a brand. Then, you know, we still have our Crosby brand of molasses. It's just, sure. you know, the Crosby brand of molasses is is manufactured or packed by Crosby Foods as opposed to Crosby Molasses Company. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we the, the packaging and the product um, are, are the same um, as, as people have come to expect. It's really, um, as we look to, to grow our contract manufacturing business and our our liquid um, or our bulk liquid handling facility. We just wanted to be, um, we just wanted the molasses out of our name so that we could speak more broadly about our capabilities. Right. You know, between 1879 when the company got started and today, there have been literally thousands of companies in New Brunswick that have been founded and then sold off to other owners or, you know, disappeared. Why has Crosby resisted this trend, do you think? Uh, well, we do have uh, long-standing roots in, in the region, and, and we're very much uh, committed to, to our community. Um, and, you know, my father uh, has a very strong sense of stewardship. Um, he never considered, you know, selling the business because he really didn't view the business as his to sell. Um, you know, he always considered it to belong to that next generation. And, and I think that belief really continues to guide us uh, today. You know, we all, um, everyone in our business has a role to, to leave this, this company in better shape than, than we found it. You know, we had a podcast with Andrew Olin not that long ago who talked, you know, I think they're into their sixth generation, if I'm not mistaken. And he talked about the process of transfer from one generation to another. Do you have a formal process, you know, to, that that helps that transition, like they do? Yeah, yo, absolutely, yeah, and and you know, my father, I guess, had the the foresight to start planning this um, a long time ago. Uh, so yeah, it it involves uh, lawyers, it involves accountants, it in, uh, involves uh, wealth uh, management people. It's um, involves lots of communication both to um, to people that work in the business and I have a couple sisters that that don't work in the business so um, it's uh, you know it's it's it doesn't happen overnight that's for sure yeah just want to talk a little bit about your competition who would be your main competitor in in your in your main line of work so, so I did mention a little bit that, you know, you have molasses that is made intentionally at the sugar mill, and then you also have, have grades of molasses that are more byproducts. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, there are literally, you know, thousands of, of these sugar mills and, and sugar refineries um, around the world that, that produce molasses. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, there would have been all kinds of people importing and distributing molasses. And, and really, um, there are some people more so, I guess, in the food service space that, that are buying, I guess, various refiner syrups that, that resell them to, to other food companies. Um, on the consumer product side, um, I would say it's more about substitutes. Um, 
there aren't there aren't rival brands of molasses necessarily. There are store brands of molasses, uh, but there are a ton of substitutes. So people, you know, if they're looking to sweeten their baked goods, they could sweeten them with honey. They could sweeten them with corn syrup, maple syrup. Um, so uh, I would say substitutes are probably more of, of a threat to our molasses business. And also, you know, the, the reality is people, um, you know, through COVID people baked a lot, but, but people are kind of going back to their old habits and, and convenience is very important to, to today's consumers. So a lot of people don't, don't take the time or have the time to actually bake. So, so they, you know, they buy their bread or they buy their, their cookies at the store level. So, um, but you know, on the on the dry blending and packaging side, there are all kinds of different businesses uh, out there that offer similar things. Um, but I would say it's our sort of combination of manufacturing assets, uh, customer centric team, and 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 family ownership that that make us make us unique. I wanted to ask you a bit about the future. You talked about the decline in your core core business and the rise of the contract manufacturing and other, other services. But what you're a relatively young man, I think, compared to Don and myself. Uh, what are your plans over the next 20, 25 years? Are you focused on sort of maintaining the business, growing the business? Do you have geographic ambition? Do you want to build new facilities? Where are you in terms of your, what can you tell us about your growth uh, strategy? Well, we, we, uh, we definitely want to uh, protect our molasses business, defend our molasses business, and, you know, ensure that we're attracting that next generation consumer. Um, but, you know, if we're real and frank, um, we're not going to see large growth in, in, in molasses. Um, so, so where we think we have the best opportunity to grow is is more in leveraging uh, the manufacturing assets that we that we have today. So we're, we're really focused on two main areas. The first one is our, our liquid bulk storage and handling facility on the west side. So um, we're looking to um, start working on a rail siding uh, for that facility. So right now we have the ability to to import um, food grade liquid products from ocean vessel right into our large storage tanks. And then we can basically uh, put those into tanker trucks and transport them. Um, but, you know, the economics of that are such that, you know, you get past a certain more than a day's drive away and you start to become uncompetitive. So we want to add that rail siding so that we can uh, cover a little bit more territory. Uh, so that's the, the one area of, of, of growth that we want to focus on. And the second one is those contract manufacturing um, opportunities that are out there. Um, we do have uh, underutilized capacity. So so first and foremost, we want to go out there and, and, and try to fill that capacity. And we, uh, we recently hired, uh, actually just last month in the month of September, we hired a new uh, director of business development. And, and uh, so that's our primary focus right now is just ensuring that that you know the world knows who we are and what we can offer because we you know historically I would say we've we've been a bit below the radar we haven't um, promoted our our capabilities as as loudly and proudly as as perhaps we should have um, so that that's really where we want to start and and. Uh, you know, but admittedly, it is going to be a bit of a discovery process. We don't know exactly how and where we're, we're going to grow, but we do know that we have to expand our offering, uh, diversify our, our, our markets, fill our capacity, uh, all of those things. James, it's not on the question list, but it just prompted based on your discussion here. Where does molasses kind of fit on the I don't know what I would call it, but like the health continuum. You've got refined sugar over here that seems to be annoying people. You've got honey over here. You've got some of the fake products. Where are the, the substitutes for sugar? Where would molasses fit on that kind of health continuum? Um, well, molasses definitely does have a bit of a, of a health halo. Um, you know, the blackstrap molasses actually has quite a bit more trace minerals and nutrients um, in it. 
Um, you know, it's high in iron, um, uh, vitamin B. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's not a health product. I would say it's maybe more of a nutritive sweetener or, um, you know, a flavoring agent. Um, as, as, you know, I, you can't really position it as a, as a health product per se, but it's certainly a natural product. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of food in its most basic form. Um, you know, it, in, in Canada, fancy molasses has a standard of identity. So like when you see it on a label, like there's our ingredient declaration for a fancy molasses has one ingredient that's fancy molasses. Um, so, so in terms of, um, you know, knowing what's in your food and, and why it's there, it's, you know, it's a pure and natural product. Hmm. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the business case. A lot of food manufacturers over the last 30 years or so have left the region. There was a big Hershey's factory in Nova Scotia, but there's been others over the years. And primarily that's because, or at least the, the, the story is that because you had to import a lot of the raw materials into the production process and the local market wasn't large enough. So you've obviously have a national market, even an international market. So what's your business case? How, how are you able to, you know, succeed when others have failed? I put a lot of credit um, to my ancestors. I mean, they're the ones who, who ultimately set up shop here. Um, but I, I do feel that it's really our bulk storage facility that, has allowed us to kind of um, be the last company standing because um, it's far more expensive to to ship molasses and and, and you know buy the container or um, you know where we can we can import you know four or five thousand tons of product at a time. Uh, it gives us um, you know a lot more flexibility. So. I would say that that, you know, that has been our competitive uh, advantage, so to speak. But um, but I do I do worry not just for food companies in Atlanta, Canada, but just in Canada um, in general, right? I mean, there aren't. I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head, but you know, if you look at the trends over the last twenty years, they haven't been favorable for food manufacturing facilities. And Canada, you know, in general, is a difficult place to do business. We have sparse population density. We have uh, consolidated uh, grocery retail involved um, uh, environment. We have uh, productivity that that lags our our neighbors to the south in the United States. Uh, we have a, a high regulatory environment, um, relatively speaking. So, you know, the cost of doing business is is a constant challenge and. I think it's really important for our country that we don't become a land of warehouses and distribution centers. Um, I mean, we saw during COVID just how fragile supply chains could be. And we have such um, an abundance of agricultural uh, products um, that are grown in Canada. We don't want to just export these uh, to other countries and then import them back as finished goods. So I think, you know, we really need to make sure that, that food consumed in Canada is made in Canada as well and, and really have to support our, our local Canadian manufacturing base. So I, I really appreciate that insight because we did have the CEO of the, I forget the name of his organization, but he represents food manufacturers in Canada and he had the same concern that more and more of this production is leaving the country, that there's more incentives in the United States to build food manufacturing plants and capacity and there's not as much support here as uh, national and provincial governments start to move their priorities elsewhere. So I, I think um, I think we do have to have a conversation about food manufacturing in Canada and, and appreciate that uh, that you raised that. Just one last question before I flip it back to Don. Um, you know, you're competing with bigger companies with larger marketing budgets. Uh, how does a company, particularly in your, maybe not as much directly in molasses, but certainly in your in the substitute products, how do you compete in that market? How do you do you do you have a very targeted strategy? Are you using TikTok? Like how do, how do you actually compete with these larger larger uh, firms? Um, well, I think we we kind of have to pick our battles, and uh, you know we have a really strong strong team 
um, uh, behind us here. Um, I think it really is our agility and our responsiveness. Like we're we're very much focused on on our customer and 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 how we can create value for them and. Um, you know, but we constantly have to challenge ourselves to you know think differently, uh, and I would say above all, just be entrepreneurial um, in our in our approach. Um, like we we can do things as an independent family-owned business that that you know large global food companies just don't have the autonomy or the ability to to move. It seems kind of crazy to talk about you know. A company focused on molasses and speed in the same sentence, but we we can be, um, you know, quick when we need to be. Um, and we're, I mean, ultimately we're control we're in control of our of our destiny here, and and I think um, some of our customers recognize that and appreciate that, and and use that to to um, to strengthen our partnership or use that insight. I want to talk a little bit more about your current marketing strategy. I recall James uh, having some contact with Crosby's when I still owned my company. Um, at the time, the company was considering doing some research to help create more demand for the use of molasses in cooking, I believe. And uh, I believe that you pr heavily promote uh, the use using recipes to promote your products right now. Is, is that is that a core of your marketing strategy to expand the use of uh, molasses in the baking cooking category? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we, we want to um, encourage baking. Um, but you know, we, we have awareness challenges. And we also have, you know, budgetary constraints, I guess, like everyone does. Um, and, and molasses is, you know, primarily purchased as a baking ingredient. But you know, it's it's within those traditional Caribbean trade routes, whether that's you know, the Atlantic provinces, New England, Quebec. You know, that's where our per capita consumption is the strongest. Um, as you move further west, it becomes more of a seasonal um, seasonal baking ingredient. But you know. In our in our building, like you can go back to like we have cookbooks here from like the fifties, the seventies. Like we've always, uh, I guess, been trying to collect recipes, share recipes, speak about the versatility um, of the product, um, and and you know, but I would say about the molasses and the consumer, like right now, it's all about that next generation consumer. Like we are very much over indexed in households with over, you know, over the age of 55. Um, and, and so our molasses marketing activities are very much sort of focused around, you know, Easter, we would campaign at Easter. Uh, this summer, we had a grilling focused campaign. Um, and then also the holiday period. So between um, let's say October and December, we probably move over about sixty percent of our of our product that that sells at the grocery store level moves in those final three months of the year, and that's really you know the Thanksgiving and then the holiday period. That's when people, you know, make molasses cookies or gingerbreads or or, or do the bulk of, of of their baking. But you know, we want to expand. Like we want to talk about you know. That molasses is not just a baking ingredient you can also use it in you know sauces and marinades you can use it as a topping um so so this year we did um sort of experiment a little bit with um uh, a barbecue initiative so we had a what we call the secret sauce competition which was uh, the best homemade barbecue sauce and we were affiliated with the the rib fest in both uh, St. John and Fredericton, and we had this contest, and we invited people to submit um, their favorite homemade recipes uh, for barbecue sauce that contain molasses, and and we gave out prizes, and we also had the contest internally, um, which I think might have been rigged because I uh, I didn't I didn't uh, I thought my sauce was the best, but it didn't promote uh, on top unfortunately. <laughs> but but anyway, it's all been about sort of you know just engaging that consumer, getting user generated content, um, and you know encourage sharing um, of recipes as as much as we can. 
I uh, I am almost embarrassed to admit it, but I I do go on TikTok once in a while, and but mostly for food and cooking because it does seem to be this 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 massive trend. There's actually been runs on product that uh, after somebody um, some recipe went viral. So I encourage you to think about uh, TikTok reaching those younger audiences <laughs> because it's pretty impressive. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about productivity. It's been on the mind of a lot of manufacturers in New Brunswick. How do we become more efficient, more productive in what we do? How do we, you know, drive growth in sales and output, but on a on a on a, on a similar sized employee base or even smaller? Have you been thinking about productivity? Have you taken any steps to improve your productivity by adopting technology or looking at process improvements? Oh yeah, constantly. Um, so we, um, one of the initiatives that that we um, undertook a, on, on the plant floor is um, we adopted some some software that basically eliminated the need to keep um, paper records. So we, all of our our manufacturing specifications and our you know uh, pre op and post op inspections used to all be done sort of on paper and then that information would have to be reviewed and, you know, uploaded into our system. So we've, we've uh, largely eliminated all that and moved to, to tablets so that the operator is really just cap- capturing the information one time. Uh, we've also um, got sensors on all our, our equipment so we can measure the overall uh, equipment effectiveness and get, um, like we have dashboards uh, around our facility where, where people can see the, you know, how um, the equipment is performing relative to the standards that we've established. Uh, we recently just did an automation um, project where we invested in a robo-palletizer, case packer, cartoner. Um, and, and I think I mentioned earlier that our next project is is a rail siding um, at our liquid bulk terminal. Um, so, you know, the, the, the speed at which the world is moving at is is incredible right now and and uh, i was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and one of the speakers basically said you know the world has never moved this fast before and it will never move this slow again um <laughs> so it's uh you know it's it's all about staying current and trying to just stay stay ahead of that of that disruption that we all know is 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 coming at us at all times can I just ask you one a quick question here about the your infrastructure at the airport? Is that what's the shelf life on that? Is that is that in good shape? Is that a 20, 30, 40 years of before you have to make a massive capital investment, or are you at at the point in the cycle where you have to look at big investments in that infrastructure? So yeah, no the the infrastructure at the port of St. John is you know there's various um, like we we're on like these multi year reinvestment plans so. So, uh, a couple of years ago, we, um, we did some, some pretty extensive tank repairs on one of our larger tanks. So we basically, um, you know, repaired the lower ring of the tank. We, uh, grinded the whole tank and put a new epoxy coating on it. And I think that tank, uh, now doesn't have to be inspected for another eight years. Um, but, but this is all, you know, very, um, expensive infrastructure to maintain. So there's, you know, there's tanks, there's pumps, there's pipelines, there's, um, you know, valves and, you know, so there's, you know, we, we constantly have to be pouring money back, back into our business just to, you know, to, to keep it, to keep it current, um, I wanted to get just back to uh, to your manufacturing facilities. I just want clarification on something that the kind of uh, uh, sort of contract manufacturing opportunities you're looking for, are they only liquid or are they m- more than liquid? No, no. I mean, we, we do have the tank infrastructure, right? But then we also have the, the dry blending and handling infrastructure as well. So, so literally any dry ingredients, like we, we have a, a, a rail siding today where we have the ability to receive rail cars of sugar. Um, so, so today we can receive, you know, sugar by rail car, blow it into a ribbon blender, add all the other minor ingredients, mix it all up, and then essentially deliver it to the, the packaging lines um, 
on the ground floor of our building. Um, so, so we're really looking, you know, we want to, we want to move beyond ju just the, you know, the sugar based blends essentially. Um, and we want to get into more of the better for you product space. Right. So, so, um, you know, whether that means, um, you know, looking at, uh, better for you, uh, coffee lattes or, or, uh, boosters for your smoothie or, um, you know, the, 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 the products that are kind of core to us right now, there hasn't been a ton or we haven't been engaged in a lot of innovation in those products. They're, they're similar formulas and similar packages um, that we've been doing for quite some time. So, so the capability is there. We just, you know, really need to get in front of our customers early in the innovation process and, and treat it a little bit more collaboratively so that we're sharing ideas early in the process, getting their feedback, making the adjustments, um, and, and really seeing what, what we can land on. Um, we, we'd like to believe that, that there is, um, you know, a, a food entrepreneur out there who's got either a product that, you know, they're looking to scale and might benefit from our service, or there could be a big, you know, global food company out there that is looking to de-risk their supply chain or, or find a, another contract manufacturing partner that just simply doesn't know that we exist uh, today. So that, that's why we're really putting the push on, on um, you know, communicating, uh, you know, the company name change and, and you know, the, the breadth of our capabilities. Yeah, but but again, scale is important. Can you give us give me just an idea? Like, like I'm a I'm a manufacturer. Uh, you know, I, I have a product that I want you to package for me. Mm -hmm. You know, how much could you deliver? If you know, if you're looking for scale, like uh, I don't know how you would put it in terms of volume, but yeah. you know, what kind of volume can you get through your 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 current capacity? Um. So some of the single serve beverage packages that we produce, we do about two million units a week. Um, okay. So yeah, we have the ability to produce upwards of uh, 110 million pouches a year um, on some okay. of our more highly automated areas of our plant. So so like yeah. we're we're kind of in this like we're we're not an early stage company obviously, um, but we're also. Yeah um you know not a, a super large company so we're kind of in that middle territory well that's quite a bit of volume though and, and that helps our listeners i think understand it a little bit better james like you know thinking about where you are and in in, in in the marketplace and all the challenges rising costs and distribution challenges you know what what are the things that keep you up at night as they say um no shortage. I've got three children, so they uh, do their best to keep me up at night too. Um, but yeah, it's 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 just really the speed at which change is happening today. Um, so I get really concerned about you know are we moving quickly enough? Um, rising costs, uh, difficulty of getting price increases through. Um, you know, how do we as a company, like what's next for us? How are we going to make a bigger impact? Um, do we have the right people in the right roles doing the right things? Uh, all, all those things are, are, are questions that, uh, that I ask myself um, regularly. Mm -hmm. um uh, 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 one one sort of side uh, issue we, we've we've heard it from almost everybody we talk to is that is manpower uh, recruitment. Is, are you finding that challenging in the St. John market, which is actually uh, you know actually doing quite well? Yeah, no, we definitely have. Um, I, I would say it's a little better now in that um, you know pre-COVID we we never really had. Um, issues with like, you know, we post for jobs and we get lots of applicants, uh, but, but really through COVID that, that was a big challenge. Um, but, um, yeah, like the labor market is super tight and everyone's saying it's going to remain tight. So, you know, we, we have to really be clear on our employee value proposition and, and ensure that, that 
you know, we're standing out, um, you know, relative to, to the other people in the market that are also after the same labor pool. Um, so that, you know, that, that's a constant challenge for sure. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the city of St. John. I had an office there for a really long time. I got to know the city pretty well. It was always kind of a, you know, um, a, a city in development, it seems to me. Um, I did some work not that long ago with Envision about uh, what was going on in the city. I ended up talking to a lot of people, and I came away with the impression that something is happening in the city of St. John, finally. Uh, I wanted to get your impression of what's going on in the city. Yeah, no, I mean, I I don't spend nearly as much time in the city today as I, as I did when I was younger. And by city, I mean more the uptown core, because uh, we're a little bit removed uh, working on Rossay Avenue. Um, but yeah, the, we know the folks at Envision, and, and I think what they're doing for our region is great, just promoting, um, you know, the, the quality of life. And, and uh, you know, we have a fantastic... Um, ability to kind of have work-life balance or work-life integration. Um, you know, I, I have friends that have relocated here from Toronto and they just love the fact that they can, you know, drive their kid to, you know, baseball practice and be back in, you know, five minutes as, you know, like it just, um, it, it's, you know, and there's so many great, you know, outdoor activities that you can have here. Um, you know, but but you know there 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 are challenges in St. John. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I I definitely would consider myself to be a a bit of an eternal optimist, and and I really try to focus um, on the things that are within our control, which you know in my case is is the direction of the business, and and I think you know what what we can do here. Um, is you know if we can grow our business and develop our people and create value for our customers, you know that that's the best thing that we can do for our community is to grow our business and create jobs. So so that's where we really try to, to focus. Amen to that. So James, we want to thank you for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Tell us telling us about your firm, about its past, about its present, and about its future. Where I'm a big believer in in. The food manufacturing sector in Canada, I think we should be doing more, having more focus on that sector um, um, where it makes sense. I mean, obviously, imported food makes makes sense, too. But, uh, uh, yeah, we appreciate you joining us today on Insights, and we wish you all the best. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, James. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.